Jordan, how's it going? What's up? What's up, Rob? How are you? I'm all right. I'm uh, been, been doing a lot of hell diving. I'm still <laughs> I'm still he- deeply into that. Deeply invested in in that. Uh, yeah. In the robot war, the the pushing back the automaton menace. Uh, I've been through some crazy shit ex- this week. Some crazy experiences. I'm still kind of trying to readjust to civilian life. You know, it takes time. You go back to <laughs> civilian life and you're in your big comfy bed. You know, it feels, doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. You want to go on the floor, the hard floor. It's just strange. I'm hearing sirens and stuff going off. I'm wondering if there's bots it's cresting over the I'm hill. Sure it's triggering it for is. you. Yeah. It is actually. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, no problem. I, I got messaged on Discord today by a recruiter by the name of Ricky asking if I'm ready to enlist. Enlist again. in the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean you it's you have to do your patriotic duty. You have to defend Super Earth that's under all kinds of different threats right now. And we need all, like I was saying in the previous episode that we did with with Ricky, you know, if whether it comes to you, whoever's listening, we need all hands on deck here. Uh this is serious. We need everyone to pr- contribute to this war effort. You know, I'm going to be back doing another tour again soon myself. So, you know, it's, uh, I know it's not easy. You might, it might not be what you want, but it's like, it's, it's called doing your patriotic duty to defend super earth. So it's the price of freedom and exactly. we all need to do our part. Exactly. Yeah. We need to spread it, spread liberty and democracy throughout the galaxy. There's, is there a more noble endeavor? <laughs> I would say no. I, I agree. I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> I liked our conversation with Ricky earlier this week. Uh, subscribers uh, who have listened to it, I hope you enjoyed it as well. It was really fun. We talked about that game, Helldivers, and how that has restarted, maybe? Reignited a conversation around Super Troopers, Paul Verhoeven's 1997 sci-fi parody and satire movie. Uh, it was enjoyable. I watched it for the first time this week. Hilarious. I've been thinking about it ever since. And we got into that, the message of that movie, how it informed foreign policy in the U.S., especially over the next several years, or predicted U.S. foreign policy over the next several years. Yeah. Really good, really fun conversation with Ricky. You can get that at insurgentspod.com. It's just five bucks a month. You get access to that episode and all of our premium episodes. You get an additional episode every week for five bucks. Uh, it's a pretty good deal. You know what? I'm really, I'm really proud of the the bonus content and really just overall like the kind of what we've been able to do uh, on this program for like going on four years now. And it's like we're looking around the media landscape and seeing all these massive, uh, big brands uh, falling apart, firing people. Vice is the latest example of this. Vice, like four years ago, was valued at like six billion dollars. And now I guess they can't even have a website. They can't even they can't even afford to have a website. They just fired several hundred people. Um, 
it's it's absolutely insane what is happening to the media landscape and uh you know i feel really fortunate i i'm I, that i'm able to uh you know work in independent media a little bit and i'm able to support myself and i don't have to uh be involved with one of these like media brands relying on like VC an influx of VC cash and these vultures coming in and trying to turn it into some like profit making machine. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I'm, it's once again, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to be here doing the work that we're doing and the fact that there's a little audience out there listening to it. And we're not, we're not at the whims of these kinds of like unaccountable, uh, financial interests. It sucks because vice, has been a site that I've appreciated for God, my most, if not all of my adult life. It's produced some of my favorite articles and just the writers there having such a long leash to do creative, unique pieces and work that no other outlet really could hold a candle to. Just, yeah, I think often <laughs> I even mess- message Justin Cave here, a-, a friend of mine, he's a freelancer and did a piece for vice God several years ago at this point. And I go back to it all the time because it's hilarious. And he just talked about boofing cocaine <laughs> and he did for the piece. He did it, which is, he just blew Coke, Coke up his ass. And it's just, it's such a funny piece. Nice. And I messaged them if the site, which they say they're going to shut down. I said, if this article disappears, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not messing around. I want to go back to that every like six to eight months and reread it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was one of the first like major publications that I was able to get published in. I had done a few things, um, writing about music mostly because that was kind of what I had experience in, and I was trying to expand and trying to get my name out there. And uh, being published in Vice Sports was like a huge deal for me. I wrote this piece about the Torture Chamber Pro Wrestling Dojo in Montreal, and I spent like a week or two hanging out there at the watching all the, the students learning how to wrestle. And it was an amazing experience. And it was, it really like helped me increase my, my profile and the, the audience that I had and, and kind of was a big part of like putting me on the path uh, that's led me to what I'm doing now. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's sad. It's like, it's sad that all these, all these kind of like media outlets just keep kind of, dropping that they can't kind of figure out this formula um it's just there's been too many examples to name now vice is just the latest but uh again that's why i'm thankful to the audience of this show i'm thankful to the people that pay attention to the stuff that i do that allow me to to continue being able to do this kind of work um and with a not a huge amount of security but but definitely like <laughs> i'm not worried about a, a venture capitalist firm coming in and and just like firing both of us and replacing us with like ken. ai or something like that yeah you know? ai ai or ken yeah we that would be even worse really <laughs> i'd rather i'd rather be ai <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no i i hear you being independent and listener supported is a very precarious situation because you know people might unsubscribe if they don't like a guest or a topic or whatever some people just might not ever subscribe because they don't want to and i think just you know we've made the case before like it we would argue it goes beyond just this show and this isn't something you're waiting to hear and a lot of pitches or asks for people to subscribe it's just it's the reality though like 
you see a lot of small independent creators or outlets or shows struggle and eventually shudder because people don't or can't subscribe. And I understand that it's challenging, but if you can, you help create a more robust ecosystem. And I think when you look at the right and how well-funded it is, yeah. that you can just basically go and do one stunt making fun of trans people, making fun of immigrants, doing something heinous that get that gets attention within a week or two. There's some right-wing enterprise that's well-funded, often funded by a billionaire or special interests or f- the fracking industry, yeah. willing to give you a show and a platform and a stable source of income. So that's what the left is up against. And I think a lot of people are conditioned to always accept or understand or see the news and content and most of what they get as free and just that's unrealistic. So like I'm saying, it's not just our show. If you can subscribe, that's great. I would argue you also should, if you can subscribe to a handful of progressive and lefty and independent outlets and enterprises because we need a more robust ecosystem because we're not going to obviously reach everybody Jacobin's not going to obviously reach everybody. All of these shows together can reach more and more people, but they need resources, they need infrastructure, they need the ability to do that. And this is a a people-powered effort. So if you can, you can subscribe to us, that's great. If you can subscribe to several, that's even better. Yeah, I think it's most important that people subscribe to this show, though. I think ideally for the for the future health of society, <laughs> really, I think the that's what... The future of this country, the yeah. dem- our democracy hangs it's on you subscribing stake. to exactly. this show. Um, <laughs> I know, I was just going to say, imagine if some like fracking billionaire would just like pay us 75k a year to just talk about like Disney cartoons or whatever these guys do. <laughs> that must be nice. I can't like, believe... That's a great like, gig. What? Yeah, what a life. And then these guys like, whine about other people and like mock people for getting laid off. What are you off. complaining about? They're like, no one wants to work anymore. Like, that's literally your job <laughs> is just to complain about like woke non-binary Ariel. characters in like Pixar movies or something. Like, that's all you do all day. I don't know. Forty-five. These are the rugged yeah. Daily Wire's senior mermaid correspondent. <laughs> These are the the rugged, uh, manly men, uh, conservative uh, individualists. You know, masculinity is dying. Day. Exactly. And here's why Lilo and Stitch is too woke. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, get a real job. Well, speaking of uh, 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 shitty media stories, another one today that is worth mentioning. So he has not been on the show, but he's somebody I've talked to online for years and somebody whose work I think everyone has seen. If you have seen the Sinclair News video where it shows all of the local Sinclair station anchors reciting the same script, that was made by Tim Burke, otherwise known as Bubba. Bubba Prague on every social media outlet. I hope you follow him, but you've probably seen his stuff. In 2022, he helped to facilitate (laughs) a series of stories where footage, raw footage from Fox News Studios was published in uh, Media Matters, I think maybe Vice, and Daily Beast, and a handful of others. And this was a result of Fox broadcasting this feed online, unprotected, 
no security protocols, nothing any user needed to bypass. It was just out there. If you could find this link, you would have access to it. So you recorded it and shared it with media outlets. He did nothing wrong. It's it's just like visiting any other site and screenshotting or screen recording any other site and then handing it off to the news. Yeah. Nothing wrong. Like that's on them if they've not secured that It's feed, their stupidity. That's their fault. Right. Yeah. So they they threw a fit. They, they issued a legal threat and I think a challenge and went after him. And then his house was raided last year. They took all of his devices. This guy had a crazy setup for screen grabbing sports clips and news clips and he was a consultant and he did a lot of work. So it jeopardized his ability to work. Now today, there was a 14 count federal indictment. He was indicted by a grand jury charged with one count of conspiracy, six counts of accessing a protected computer without authorization as all the facts show at that is bullshit and seven counts of intercepting or disclosing wire oral or electronic communications. Again, the facts of this of this case negate all of those charges. It's just, it's totally bullshit. I'm not a lawyer, but I know it's bullshit just by reading the facts of the case and just by understanding what happened from people who are close to the story from him himself. It's it's all fucking bullshit. So if you are outraged, and I argue you should be, and you want to show him some support because he's going to be up against government lawyers. I'm sure Fox is going after him. TimBurkLegalFund.org. We'll put that link in the show notes. You can chip in a few bucks to help pay his legal bills, which I'm sure will be insane. I would hope some of these organizations that benefited from his 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 material also chip in. Uh, but this is a this is a very serious threat against somebody who again did not break the law. He accessed a public website which anybody could do. Once again, the defenders of free speech and free expression have uh, <laughs> showing showing what their their values are really all about yet again. Um, yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that uh, video of all the Sinclair talking heads using all the same language. It's funny how that's kind of gotten a second life with all these conservatives discovering it and yeah. taking it out of context of like what Sinclair yeah. is and what their whole platform is and trying to make it about like, liberals or wokeness or whatever and being like no that's you guys that's you yes it's like elon musk sharing it and be like well this is so concerning we're looking into yeah. this dystopian yeah exactly <laughs> this is your shit you know yeah but yeah I, I do i do hope people contribute to the legal fund i can't imagine that's a great position to be in uh so yeah i hope that uh that works out and that be that is exposed as being a bullshit frivolous lawsuit but I think when big corporations engage in lawsuits like that or like that kind of lawfare, it's not even always about winning, but it's just about sending a message to people about, uh, you know, what happens when you try and fuck with them. So, you know, um, it, and for most normal people, they don't have the financial stability and security to confront that when you're dealing with a massive uh, corporate conglomerate in that way. So I hope it goes okay as well. What's going on in this next conversation you're about to have? Why don't you clue me in on that? Once again, I'm in the dark about what's going on in my, this, my own podcast. Secret conversations. Oh boy. This, it's a, it's a smoke filled conversation with Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, otherwise known as NYC Southpaw. They have a new book called The Truce, Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party. I read it over the weekend, and it was just, it was a really fascinating 
look at the jockeying between the Biden camp and the Bernie camp and the broader progressive world post-primary going into this administration and carrying on into today. We talk about the book and how this book serves as a roadmap for future challenges and inter-party challenges going forward. One of which, we, we talk about it at the end, and as Hunter brought it up, I wish I, we could have spent more time on it, but stick around for the end, because the makeup of the primary schedule, as they point out in this book, is going to be a cyclical fight in the Democratic Party every four years because of how they've structured revisiting when states have primaries. But then these state governments, especially in these purple states, many of them have right-wing state legislatures and right-wing control, they're not going to enact changes to their state laws about when these primaries happen. So the Democratic Party is setting candidates up for really delicate like tightrope acts where they have to determine whether they even campaign in primary states and risk having their delegates like removed or not counted or not being treated as like equal or whole or going into like a challenge where maybe you have to compete in a couple states where you don't really have a shot it's just it's going to be such a mess and i wish we would have spent more time on it but that was there's a whole chapter in the book on this that i thought was really fascinating the book is called The Truce. Our conversation was was really fun. Uh, I would encourage everyone to pick it up. And uh, yeah, you want to get into it? Let's get into it. I'm looking forward to it as well. All right. Hunter and Lupe will be joining me right after this. Now I'm joined by Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, authors of the new book, The Truce, Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party. Hunter and Lupe, thank you so much for joining me. How are you both? Hey, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Doing well. Hunter, I believe we've asked you before, but just I'll have to refresh my memory. But Lupe, we ask everybody who comes on the show... The same question, just so we know who we're dealing with, whether or not the conversation should continue. And now it's it's your turn. Lupe, are you a gamer? I am a a former gamer. Um, I, okay. I did it quite a bit uh, going going through college and law school. I, I don't do it as much anymore, uh, but I, I miss it sometimes. And um, I, if if this means the end of our conversation, I, I, I do apologize. <laughs> but I'm I, I was. Uh, I, I, a big gamer for a while and probably not any good at it anymore. I think it's it's a once always situation. You're just you're baked in, you're grandfathered in, you're fine. You, <laughs> the conversation can continue. But what did you play? That's what I want to know. A lot of Counter Strike, a lot of Doom. Uh, I'm an old, old, old done man. Uh, so Doom, Counter Strike, Assassin's Creed. Um, I mean, I got my start on King's Quest, man. I was I was playing King's Quest on the PC Junior typing in the little text entries you know um okay that, that, was, that was most of my experience and then a, a lot of mario kart and uh sort of towards the end the, the wii games the mario kart um and uh the more fun stuff but after that i had to go be a lawyer and uh <laughs> and there's no time not a lot of time for gaming yeah. after that. <laughs> no it kind of kills the soul you just you, you can't you can't let your inside gamer 
flourish anymore. That's true. The husk of the man you see before your days. Thanks to Big Law. <laughs> and Hunter, if I remember, you were a Switch guy, right? Yeah, so I, I got big on the Switch during the pandemic. Um, my my latest thing with that is I'm actually using the Switch game that they have to try to learn Yu-Gi-Oh cards because um, you can actually play on Switch. Um, and as you know, Jordan, I'm I'm... I have trouble keeping up with the magic rotations, man. They overwhelm me. <laughs> so I've been trying to find a, a, a game with a more static uh, collection. And then also I've, I've I moved to Brooklyn in the past year and I've been setting up the man cave. And down there I've got all of the little mini retro consoles. So like retro, oh. retro game gear. Um, the PlayStation one, which is actually really surprisingly bad. Um, and then the one that has become my favorite is the Super Famicom, the okay. little retro edition. And this is the basically Japanese version of the original NES, I think. So it's like really, really old original Nintendo games, but some of them are Japan only and the themes are just bizarre. Good luck with the instructions. Uh, but it is an absolute blast. So I'm just really enjoying that. And I can't even tell you what half of what I'm playing is called. Oh, that's fun. I like that. Yeah, I love the the mini retro wave. I, that It seemed to have disappeared. They had this like run in the late 2010s where every year or two they would do another one. And everyone was expecting an N64 one. And I just, I don't think that ever came. Yeah, I think the the Famicom might be the newest one, but it, it was Japan only. Um, but you can get them here. And I really, um, I really dig it. I actually, there's a store near me that has an N64 for a hundred bucks. And I'm, I am very, oh. very tempted for GoldenEye alone, obviously. And Star Fox. I need some Star Fox. Both are classics. You know, they re-released they re-released Goldeneye on Switch and on Xbox. And I tried to do a couple of levels of the campaign. And I don't know if I was just not feeling it that day, but I just had this moment of this realization. It's like, was this game only good to me in my mind? Because I was like eight years old. Because <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> this well, is it, not fun. <laughs> the campaigns were never the thing. That was like the sleepover yeah. battle game. Right. That it was, was always yeah. the multiplayer. Yeah, have you guys watched the the Goldeneye speedrun guys on YouTube who are just going through the campaigns as fast as possible? And it's like no. it's turned into this like weird martial art where they're like, you know, they're like running out while throwing three grenades at the helicopter before they can see it, and they 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 get through each level in like in record. They're trying to beat the record times, but it's like it's evolved into much more of like a racing sport and and choreography than, than like, you know, dealing with a first person shooter. And, and someone said that. America isn't already great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's, let's get into the truce. I, I read this over the weekend. It was a great leisure read as I sat on the beach. Uh, and I just, I couldn't put it down. I, I enjoyed it. And there have been books that I've worked through on this topic over the past few months. Some have been primarily from the, the perspective of the Biden campaign, the Biden administration. Others have been from the perspective of the squad and its members and really close contact with, with some of the squad members. I think what you guys did really well was provided a holistic approach, a holistic view of this same moment that other books have tried to capture 
in a way that I thought was comprehensive, that spoke to varying perspectives, not just um, one group who they had access to, whatever. I, I just really liked being taken through these moments as you illustrate the dynamics and the conflicts between what many see as kind of two competing factions within the Democratic Party. And uh, I'm wondering if for, for people who aren't familiar with it yet, if you would be able to provide the listeners with a brief overview of what this book is, what it's about, why you both decided to write this. Well, first off, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to read it and for having us on. Um, you know, this book in many ways actually started during the Paul Manafort trial. Um, Lupe and I had been friends in New York. Um, but I got sent down to D.C. to cover Trump. I didn't see him for a couple of years. Um, and he was always, you know, Lupe is perhaps better known to the Internet as NYC Southpaw, um, Twitter's favorite pup dog lawyer. Um, you know, and he had this account where a lot of people just didn't know who he was. Um, but he was offering just some of the most brilliant political analysts and report, analysis and reporting you could find uh, under the guise of an anonymous puppy. Um, but I had met him many years ago and it was, it was so funny because it was like Lupe walked into this media party and it was like, there's Southpaw, like that's really him. Um, and and we were friends, but we didn't see each other for a couple of years. And then I walk into the Manafort trial and there's Lupe. Uh, and this was crazy because, um, you know, while he was Southpaw, he was sort of an, a, a corporate lawyer on the side. That was his uh, uh, day job, let's call it. And so I was like, man, what are you doing here? And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, going off to become a writer. Um, and I'm watching this trial. And I was like, well, dude, we've got to write about this together because he's just like such a sharp legal mind. And, you know, I had experience covering Trump. So we, we started covering the Trump administration um, through the Mueller probe and it's, it's, you know, fizzling out basically. Um, and I think one thing that we noticed was, you know, there was this avalanche of attention for Trump, this, this pile of Trump books. Um, and obviously that story was important. I, I devoted years of my life to covering it. Um, but Trump's tendency to kind of take the oxygen out of the room meant that no one wasn't paying attention um, to the story that was going on on the other side of the aisle. And, you know, it was extremely important as well because, you know, essentially as Trump was threatening the American order and, and, you know, our democracy, as we know it, the opposition party was going through their own identity crisis. Um, you know, you had Bernie Sanders and this sort of rise of the new left. Um, and that question of who they were going to be and who was going to lead the party just was, was totally unresolved, um, during the Trump years. So that was a story that we set out to tell, um, and I think you rightly identify that, that you know, in compiling what I think turned out to be a history of kind of the last half dozen years or so in the Democratic Party and, and what that means for the next campaign in the next couple of years, we really found that there's a wide spectrum. You know, everyone from the DSA on to Joe Biden and then really to the right of him, you've got sort of your Josh Gottheimers, your Joe Manchins, and what we called the radical centrists. And I think a lot of the the scant reporting, frankly, that we get on the Democrats oversimplifies that dynamic. It either ignores the fulsomeness of the left and reduces that to quote unquote woke, or it, you know, 
treats Joe Biden simply as a centrist without acknowledging where he's been surprisingly progressive and without acknowledging that there, you know, is a pretty right wing center of the Democratic Party. So we really tried to do a complete top to bottom survey of the whole thing and to do it in a way that gets in the color and the characters and hopefully can keep people kind of entertained and turning the pages as they learn a lot about where things have been and where they're going. Absolutely right. Uh, th- so this is Lupe, and I, thanks for having me on as well. I, I, and thank you, Hunter, for the kind words. I'm NYC Southpaw for my sins online. Um, <laughs> and uh, we did meet in a courtroom in Alexandria in 2018, watching Paul Manafort's trial. I was actually doing some research in the Library of Congress across the river for a different project. Um, and I just took the morning off to go watch Paul Manafort. And I think the one thing that I think about a lot is that we, you know, we're not, we're not prophets. We, we didn't see the future in 2018. And we were super interested in the progressive movement and the impact it was going to have on the Democratic Party um, going forward. And that, you know, that, that the, the roads from 2018 were quite open. There, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think, was either had just been or was on the verge of being elected. And Bernie Sanders had had this huge movement that had you know, lasted through the campaign and, and had caused all sorts of disruption in the Democratic Party. We argue in the book that it, that it was, uh, you know, the Sanders campaign's energy was a big part of the reason we saw sort of lower participation rates in the general election in 2016 could explain some of why Trump won that election. Um, and so following the progressives' trajectory through the Democratic Party seemed like this really incredibly important story, one that in 2018, I didn't know enough about, really felt like I didn't know enough about who the major players were and how that was going to play out. And so this process for me has been one of trying to talk to everyone we we could through the Democratic Party and really track what happened. And it turned into a really fascinating story of the party kind of getting its unity back together, forging what we call the truce, this sort of fragile alliance between progressives and the the Democrats they they once sought to displace, um, and we we found that Barack Obama had done a lot of that, and we we found all all these other factors, and then we also just found a ton of really interesting stories um, on a smaller scale about like what had happened in Iowa on that night when there were no caucus results, and what was going on in the Sanders campaign, um, and so we thought those those stories made for a compelling narrative and we tried to, to weave them together to sort of tell how, I guess, how the progressives, progressive movement found itself in this sort of alliance with Biden and how Biden was able to pull together enough of a coalition to win um, and to uh, have the presidency he's having. And, and can I just say, this is totally unrelated to the book, but but I just popped into my head and I, I it's one of my favorite memories. You know, if you remember, the Manafort trial kind of hinged on his kind of this this outrageous pile of money he'd earned from his foreign wheeling and dealing. And they famously had like the ostrich $10,000 jacket and whatever. And, you know, while he was basically trying to argue that, you know, everything was above board and, and you know, he was a totally normal, normal, legit guy. Uh, at one point, I worked my way up into the front row and his wife was sitting there watching the case on her seat cushion from a luxury box at the Rio Olympic Games. 
So you should always, you always got to go out and report in person. You might, you might meet your, your, your book writing partner and you might, you might get to see the Rio seat cushion, you know, undergirding the uh, pleading of, of poverty. So I, I love that. Uh, it, you kind of threw me there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the story that I really it was sad, especially, I mean, what if we're just like, we're just past the four year mark, but the Iowa caucus, uh, night, I totally forgot until you, you both reminded me in your book about how chaotic that night was their app. Everyone, the, you know, the, the democratic party and the caucus, they had their own app. And then the, the Bernie campaign had their own app to also try to track results. So they had a better idea of what's going on in both just didn't work. And it was just madness. Uh, you you had some really interesting stories and funny anecdotes from the watch parties and the 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 war rooms or wherever they their bunkers on on <laughs> caucus night, and just the, the the meltdown as as the Bernie campaign realized all of their efforts and their their strategy, which hinged on winning Iowa and riding that momentum, wasn't going to materialize. And as they started to realize as the election went on that this wasn't happening, Faz and a few others started to realize, okay, well, how can we shape this administration? How can we shape some of the policy? And you talk about the, these, this commission. And one of the, the things that Faz did, I think it was Faz, that you you guys say was, was a meaningful ask was that they both sides should sign off on participants of these, these, these committees or the, the, this committee and this commission. They were called the unity task forces, yeah. Right, right. That's it. The unity task force and these policy prescriptions. I mean, some what you're talking about, even though I, I think a lot of progressives and leftists are upset that it hasn't fully materialized. The fact that Biden is talking about student debt cancellation, the fact that Biden is talking about many of these things that were unthinkable five, 10 years ago for a mainstream Democratic politician, especially a presidential candidate or a president to talk about. That is change, and I don't think a lot of people can wrap their heads around it because it hasn't fully materialized, hasn't been fully implemented. This utopian view that a lot of people have is nowhere near uh, reality. So they ignore all of this work that the Bernie campaign fought for after losing Iowa. I mean, in some of these conversations, was there a sense of frustration from people in the progressive world who fought for those changes that, that their efforts were not being recognized? You know, this book involved hundreds of interviews with people at every level of democratic politics from you know your your socialist activists in the streets to you know uh, city and state legislature members um, White House officials and then Bernie Sanders himself um, and you know one of the big questions I think people out in the world have is kind of how did we end up with Joe Biden just you know there's weakness in his polling he's he's old. I mean, it just, and, and I think everyone recognizes the stakes of, of the last election and the current one and sort of how did, how did it get left in his hands? Right. And I think a big part of that story was COVID um, because I was out on the trail in 2020. I was there for that night in Iowa and that collapse. And, you know, I think people forget how much in the early days of the 2020 primary, particularly around Nevada, even after the Iowa fiasco, Bernie seemed like maybe he really could win, right? And, you know, so we tell the story of that falling apart. Um, and Iowa, 
I mean, it's just really amazing. There was a lot, you know, that we were able to report for the first time from the fact that, um, you know, Bernie's team had their own app that collapsed at the same time as the as the uh, state party app collapsed. Um, part of, you know, their strategy to win was this thing that involved these like crazy telephone caucuses, including one in like a freelance journalist's living room. Um, and then, you know, my favorite story of all is that, you know, after this blow up in the war room and, and all this technological chaos, um, Bernie actually ultimately got the Iowa delegate that was in dispute between he and Pete Buttigieg in this backroom deal-making at the convention that just had never been reported before. Um, but it's one example, I mean, it's a particularly fun one, of the behind-the-scenes engagement that was taking place between Faz Shakir, the, the remnants of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and the Biden team during 2020. And, you know, I think I would, I would add to your explanation of it, Jordan, and say that it wasn't just coming from Faz and the Bernie folks. There was a real intentional effort on the part of Joe Biden and his team to kind of reach out to progressives and build with them. And part of that, as we report in the book, came from Obama, um, who was just, you know, had almost PTSD after 2016, believed the Hillary and Bernie rift was um, really what gave us Trump. Um, was very focused on the youth vote and was sort of urging, you know, and and working on his own too to try to kind of mend the fences there. And the Biden team um, did that as well. And the unity task forces were a big, a big part of that. And those task forces, as well as other allegiances, I mean, the 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 truce in our title really refers to this. Um, helped make Biden surprisingly progressive. And frankly, when we set out to write this book, we really were initially more focused on Bernie and AOC and that wing of the party. Um, but I think Biden kind of surprised us and changed the definition of what progressivism means right now. Um, but what's kind of interesting, and I've talked to a lot of progressives in the past couple of weeks about this, you know, Biden was to the left of Obama on a ton. He was to the left of really the campaign he ran, where he put himself out there as kind of a moderate alternative to Bernie. And yet, in spite of all of that, he's to the right of Obama on Gaza, and certainly to the right of this coalition that he took all of this care to build. So I think we're in this really interesting moment right now where our book is the story of how Joe Biden was able to pull off this almost improbable win by healing democratic divisions and building this sort of motley coalition. and. Right now, that thing that was so crucial to fending off Trump is, you know, completely at risk. Right, I, I'd agree with that. I think there's there to 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 both of your points. There's this, I think, tendency in progressive politics to sort of feel like it's always going nowhere and everything is a tragedy, and there's a lot of evidence for that. But there's also a lot of like gains that sort of are are just to my mind, kind of pocketed without a, a lot of celebration from progressives. The Democratic Party has moved toward the progressive movement. If you track, you know, the presidential campaigns of like starting with Al Gore and John Kerry, Barack Obama, and you get to Joe Biden's uh, uh, to uh, get to Joe Biden's campaign, you really see that like on tons of issues, the politicians are moving toward progressives and they're doing it because they need to, because progressives are flexing their muscles 
they flexed them in 2016. I think that's that's one of the main arguments we make. And so you do see Biden reaching out, but Joe Biden also comes from a much more traditionalist centrist, if you will, um, uh, grounding in politics. One of the things that we report, one of the stories I found most striking um, is that he called Andrew Cuomo at the beginning of the 2020 race and basically argued him. And remember, this is Andrew Cuomo and like the, the sort of COVID highs of his career when he's doing daily press conferences, is still beloved, hasn't been racked by scandal. And Biden talks him, talks Cuomo out of running. He says, if we both get in, some nut is going to win. And he's clearly referring to Bernie Sanders in that moment, I think. Um, and, you know, he, he sees the progressive leadership as oppositional within the party and nutty. And yet through this process of politics and the sort of brute force of what progressives have been able to accomplish in the last several cycles and their, their power with young people, I think he's forced to move left and he has advisors, powerful advisors like Barack Obama nudging him left. Um, and he's, you know, had to, had to do it and had to follow through on a lot of major things in the legislation that he passed in the first part of his term, um, you know, including student debt relief, including some of the other things you mentioned. Uh, so I, I think it, it's an, an interesting story of sort of practical, pragmatic politics. Um, and I, 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 to your question, there's certainly frustration in people who've been on losing campaigns, people who have... Um, you know, who fought the good fight uh, for a progressive candidate and ha haven't gotten him, in, him into office or her into office. But there's also this sense from progressives, some progressives who are in office of being on the team now. Um, and that often sort of submerges whatever frustrations they feel over not having a Bernie Sanders in the White House. And, and they're, you know, trying to back the administration, at least when we talked to them when we were writing this book, to try to get these progressive uh, bills passed. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback for a second off what Lupe said, you know, um, part of how we got Joe Biden is that the progressives stood down. And what I mean is that we are not seeing a primary where you know, there is someone occupying, you know, what we might call the Bernie Sanders lane and primarying Joe Biden from the left. Um, and we talked to a lot of the people, um, you know, who at least a year or so ago seemed like they could maybe do that. Um, and folks like Ro Khanna, Nina Turner, um, you know, talked about prioritizing this election and getting behind Joe Biden um, for at least the moment. Um, but of course, you know, all of that, again, is kind of a pre-Gaza conversation. And I do think that, you know, we're starting to see strains in this alliance right now. And I think, you know, what we're seeing in the Michigan primary with kind of the uncommitted movement um, and Rashida Tlaib's uh, support for that is kind of a, a perfect example that, you know, this goodwill that, that got progressives to help Biden heal the rift in the party um, that got him a smooth sailing so far in the primary um, really is, you know, at risk right now. And, and the frustration certainly with that issue is palpable. Something that I think about often and in a professional capacity has a lot of my colleagues uh, and I very, uh, and me very worried. Um, it just, I just don't know what the future holds or how they move forward from here. Because like you, you've pointed out the, the first two years of the Biden administration was, I think, 
cause for a lot of celebration for a lot of progressives, especially progressives in Congress. You talk about these legislative victories, the way they could have sold them could have been more effective, the way they could have done more public education around them, especially to younger people who were key in that coalition in 2020, how they approached it could have been different maybe, but it was there. And now you're at a moment. And I think what reflects this something you talk about in the book is also the change, uh, in the administration for the White House chief of staff. So Ron Klain was known, especially by progressive groups, of being a very friendly voice, a very friendly person and approachable who would help facilitate asks, who would run things up the chain, who would bring progressives, progressive organizations into the fold for policy conversations. And what, like I texted you when I got to that point in the book, Hunter, like when he left, like a lot of my colleagues were like, oh shit, what's going to happen now? And Jeff Zients is is now the chief of staff, and it seems like a, a much different dynamic. I mean, Ron Klain was meeting with Pramila Jayapal fairly often. I mean, is that is that still happening? I think there was an effort that they had hoped uh, they would they had they hoped it would continue, but is that that line of communication still open and still warm with the progressives in the White House? I, I just don't know. Well, when when Lupe was saying, you know. Um, talking about the unity task forces. Um, I think that was one pillar of, you know, the work that was done to forge this alliance between the Biden administration and progressives. And that was one um, obvious avenue that led to some of the um, more progressive policies on, you know, uh, student debt, climate, infrastructure. Um, The other big avenue is one that we report, you know, I think really for the first time at this level of detail um, in the book, and that is the Jayapal Klain connection. You know, we talked to her, and it was a really fascinating conversation about you know the constant contact they were in. Um, you know, Klain, uh, when he was chief of staff, was putting um, Jayapal, who's the chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus, you know, directly in touch with Biden. Um, they had a very close relationship, and when Ron Klain left. Um, Congresswoman Jayapal told us she was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? It sounds like, you know, from what you've told me, Jordan, that was, you know, um, (laughs) a sentiment that was echoed um, among your friends, uh, you know, uh, your your colleagues in the progressive space. And, um, you know, according to uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, he sort of told her, give the next guy a chance. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, there was a lot of concerns about Zients, um, you know, just given his kind of corporate background. Um, and so, you know, Klain vouched for him. Um, and I think what we see just in the past couple of weeks, um, Congresswoman Jayapal gave an interview with uh, the New Yorker's David Remnick on his podcast. Um, and it's interesting because I, 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 our book wasn't out yet. I don't think Remnick had seen it. Um, But her comments, if you've heard the interview in our book, are pretty clearly a direct reference to Zients and a pretty sharp critique of him because she says, you know, with the staff changes, it's like Biden is a whole different president. Um, And that's obviously the notable staff change. And she also says that the coalition is in danger of fracturing. And, you know, that's, that's really the heart of the matter here as we look at 2024. Right. The question for Democrats has been who can replicate the Obama coalition, which included, you know, white suburbanites and independents, record turnout among young people, and obviously, you know, uh, 
staunch, staunch support among minorities. Um, and what we saw with Joe Biden in 2020 is, you know, he actually matched and in some ways exceeded Obama's youth turnout, which I think is really counterintuitive. Um, Trump did make some gains among minorities, but, you know, Biden did well enough to win. What we're seeing now is Trump's gains among minorities are growing. I think one of the most undercovered and underdiscussed stories in the Democratic world and, and in the election generally is just how angry minorities are over Gaza. And then the story that we're hearing, you know, pretty well is that young people are really, really upset uh, with Gaza, with, you know, uh, upwards of two thirds of them sort of expressing disapproval um, and indicating doubt about voting for Biden. So that coalition that, you know, we tell the story of in this book, we outline how fragile it is and how careful it was for them to build it, you know, is now facing an issue that based on the polling numbers seems almost perfectly designed to blow it all up. Right. And I just add, I think there's also the, like the progressive activist world is one that Ron Klain, as we understand, really took the time to understand and engage with. In the book, we tell the story of Melissa Burney, who's this activist, very, um, very passionate about the, the issue of student debt. And she pushed the administration on, uh, getting to student debt cancellation. She was invited to messaging calls where we hear she was lobbying on the messaging calls, which is kind of an unusual thing in a, in a political world where usually you get on the phone, you hear the talking points, you get off the phone. Um, and also Ron Klain would retweet her and retweet other progressives. And Ron Klain was sort of in the in that world in a way that I, at least I haven't been able to perceive Jeff Science. Um, uh, you know, trying to hold on to his contacts to the sort of public online progressive community in the way that Ron Klain clearly did. And so I think from everything we can tell, it's quite a different story. Um, and uh, probably explains some of the, some of the changes that we've seen. Also a chapter that I really loved. And I think it's, it's a chapter that only you two could do uh, and do well. And that is the, the New York chapter and how this rift and how how this this dynamic is manifesting in New York politics and what why did you include this and what were some of the most interesting parts of the reporting process on this chapter about the the battles in Albany with Cuomo and with progressive upstarts in New York so you know first off thanks for the kind words but you know what I would say is that um, I come initially out of New York politics. Um, I reported on City Hall in Albany um, for many years. And, you know, my entree into that world coincided with Occupy Wall Street. Um, and, you know, I think 2010 is the year that we just don't talk about enough because basically Occupy and the Tea Party, you know, were these two completely opposite forces. Um, that later I think had lasting impacts, right? And and what's kind of interesting is that the Republican Party and the White House became the Tea Party, whereas Occupy, I think, you know, philosophically had huge impacts, but you know, I don't think they really got the concrete electoral and policy wins that they might have hoped for at the heart of the at the start of that movement. Um, and I think that's important because along with answering the question of sort of how did we end up with Joe Biden, I think our book 
explores something that has long been a fascination for me, which is that if you look at this country demographically, it is a young country, it is a diverse country, it is a politically liberal or left, whatever word you want to use, country. And yet we do not often get that result electorally with, I think, you know, Donald Trump and, and you know, the, the current Republican House um, being, you know, peak examples of that, right? Um, and so why is that, right? And I think New York is kind of a perfect microcosm of that discussion, because whether it be the fact that Bernie was born here, the fact that AOC came from here, um, the fact that Occupy happened here, New York has been kind of the lab and the engine of progressive politics in America. And, and, you know, really dating back to Greenwich Village in the 60s, you know, there's a really long tradition of this. And yet in New York, the result is not often progressive, right? In, in the city itself, we have Eric Adams right now, who's, you know, about as right wing as a Democrat can get. Um, you know, I think by the end, similar had been said about Cuomo, Right. So so diving into New York, I think, was the perfect way to explore this question of sort of why don't Democrats win and why doesn't the left win? Um, we went on their home turf. And, you know, what we found, um, there were a couple chapters in the book that deal with New York, including, you know, we have some on the rise of AOC, which obviously was sort of the 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 pinnacle for the the post-Bernie left in terms of victory. But then we follow two of her closest friends, um, Yulene New and Alessandra Biagi, and we saw how they were unable to replicate um, her success. And I think they ran into the same stew that, that Democrats and the left are dealing with nationwide. And that is first off Republican structural advantages. Right. Um, and on the national level, the Electoral College is obviously the biggest example of that. That is the, the number one um, enemy of majority rule in this country. I think number two is the Senate. Right. Where, where you know, these states that have less of a population than New York City have as many senators as New York and California do. You know, it's just wild. Right. Um, and then also sort of the Republican advantage in dark money. Right. And we saw that with, um, you know, certainly Biagi's race where she was, uh, you know, running in upstate New York and, and you know, uh, there was 10 plus million poured in that race. A lot of it painting her as sort of a defund the police radical. Um, but then along with those structural advantages, you have, I think, the fact that the Democratic establishment is still looking to crush those on the left in many, in many cases. And then also the fact that progressives cannot consolidate. And you saw that in both those races. Biagi was up against Sean Patrick Maloney, um, who, who was the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And, you know, he brought a ton of money down and he was able to crush her. Um, meanwhile, Yulene um, lost in a district that ultimately probably was a progressive one. And she lost to Dan Goldman, who's this sort of heir to the Levi Strauss fortune, almost a, 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 the left's perfect caricature of a, a, a centrist enemy. Um, and part of the reason that Yulene lost is because there were two other progressives in that race. And they are three, actually. And they couldn't all sit down and make an agreement together. Um, and I think, you know, we really do see a lot of that on the national level, I think a great example would be Bernie and Elizabeth Warren in the 2020 primary, where whatever um, 
leftist energy there was at the beginning of that race, it was thinned out and and spread. Um, and that was certainly a factor that helped Biden win. And I think in New York specifically, we're, we're obviously, we both live here um, and we are, we were fortunate that New York became so politically significant in 2020 and 2022. Um, we had the, the Cuomo phenomenon, and I think it is something that's unique to Democrats. Like there's, it, uh, I'm, I'm a frequent critic of sort of both sides, media coverage. And like I, one thing I'd point to is there's, there's no Republican Andrew Cuomo, right? There's no guy in Louisiana who gets to be a Republican governor, but actually like forges an alliance with the Democrats and makes everything kind of go kablooey on, on the Democrats when they have a good chance. And Cuomo really did that in New York, at, at least in my view, he created this uh, redistricting commission system that kind of just doesn't work, can't work. Um, and that resulted in the congressional redistricting uh, process getting sort of blown up, the, the Democratic legislature, le legislature trying to have its way, getting that thrown out in the courts, getting these new maps, the new maps creating these conflicts with sitting members of Congress. So you had, you know, like the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side congressmen congressman and congresswoman running against each other for the first time. Um, and you had Sean Patrick Maloney, the chairman of the, the DCCC, bouncing a congressman out of, out of his race. Um, and that congressman coming to downtown, running against Yulene New, um, arguably splitting the vote for her. And so there's the, just the sort of Rube Goldberg um, <laughs> uh, mechanism in New York politics to frustrate progressive hopes for this state. Um, that was built by a, a centrist Democrat. And I think that story and, and the particular, um, you know, the, the, the particular collisions that it created is, is one of the most fascinating and I think one of the most, um, you know, sort of instructive ones that, that we have in the book because it, it really shows you that like the granular level of American politics matters a lot and the peculiarities of the parties matter a lot. And they're not the same. So I, I really enjoyed covering New York and I, I thought it was really significant in, uh, in understanding what's going on nationally for, uh, for Democrats. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad Lupe sort of went into more depth on New York's kind of what, what we call the Thunderdome um, redistricting chaos that emerged here. Because I think, you know, one thing that's often missing um, in political coverage is just explanations of the structural stuff that really defines our politics. Um, you know, whether that be the Iowa caucus and that process, which we obviously, you know, explain along with its catastrophic collapse, or you know, your 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 redistricting and kind of your congressional structures that that you know thwart majority rule in a lot of ways. Um, and as you know, as much as we tried to get really wonky and explain that to people, we tried to do so in what I hope was a colorful and engaging way. Um, so in New York, not only do you get this sort of like story of the backroom deal making, but it's it's a very very personal one. So like when we cover the rise of AOC, you know, we're talking about you know the personal tensions on her campaign and how you know she's really an introverted person, and and this mega stardom that was suddenly thrust on her was really difficult. Meanwhile, it was also difficult for people on her team, including, you know, someone who was literally like detoxing off opiates, you know, right as that, that hurricane kind of came down. Um, and then, you know, when it came to 
Cuomo and, 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 you know, these races that played out in New York in the past year, you know, as Lupe said, we were able to report, I think for the first time on this incredible phone call, um, between Biden and Cuomo where, you know, um, Biden apparently kept Cuomo out of the race when he was at, you know, um, the height of his pandemic fame. And I think that's, that's a fascinating alternate history moment, right? Because if you had Cuomo kind of muscle into the primary and then have a sex scandal collapse, I don't know, would we be in the Trump administration right now, right? The second one. Um, and then I think, you know, it's a little less high profile, but my favorite personal story and behind the scenes story that kind of emerged in our New York reporting was when um, Sean Patrick Maloney, again, who was the, the head of the Democrats' congressional campaign arm, he beats this progressive and then ultimately, and he muscles another progressive out of his district um, who had been an incumbent. So he's basically kicking out Mondaire Jones, challenging an incumbent as the head of the Democrats' campaign arm, which is kind of sacrilege. And then he ultimately loses, right? And to a Republican. And we were at what was supposed to be his election night party and everything went sideways. And it was incredible because basically we could tell things were weird because first off, the polling was tight. Second off, his people wouldn't tell us where he was going to be that day, which is just like never a good sign of how someone's going to be doing. Um, and ultimately, I guess Nancy Pelosi called him down to her war room in D.C. for an election night party. And if you recall, you know, this was the 2022 midterms, the Democrats did well, but everyone thought they were going to lose. So we have this story where Pelosi is having this dinner and none of the lobbyists want to come. Um, they ultimately beat all expectations, except for New York, where George Santos wins, you know, which was uh, as embarrassing as it could get for the Democrats, given that the D-Trip failed to vet him and the D-Trip chair goes down. So Maloney is down with Pelosi in D.C. We're at his party and he's supposedly going to make remarks. So there's this television set up with this live feed of a podium at the D-Trip headquarters in D.C. where Maloney is going to, you know, come out and make a speech. And he didn't come out at all that night. And in fact, everyone, almost every other candidate from your town council on up in his district lost. So we're watching these candidates get up and make these cheerful concession speeches with this empty podium in the background broadcasting live from Nancy Pelosi's office. And it was just like, it was one of the craziest scenes I've seen in politics. And I think it was also, frankly, like emblematic of, you know, how much the Democratic Party stories get ignored because you saw, you know, the shocking collapse of this, this one of the most powerful guys, you know, in the House Democratic world. And Lupe and I were like two of the only national reporters there. And if we hadn't written this book, that story, that crazy scene wouldn't have gotten out at all. Um, so I don't know. That's probably a really long way of answering your initial question. Like, why do we report on New York? You know, I think there were just incredible scenes there. And, and, and I do think they really were a great way of encapsulating the larger stories. The Sean Patrick Maloney race and like <laughs> just the way everyone was kind of jockeying for these newly redrawn seats. Getting a closer look at that was something I found really beneficial because I hadn't seen a full accounting of that. I knew it happened. I was aware of the results. Taking me in there as a reader, I really appreciate it because that's just something I, you know, I generally wanted to learn more about, but hadn't gotten around to. I'm not 
searching for pieces on it typically in my free time but i i, I, I enjoyed that a lot because it's just not something i was going to get anywhere else so I, I really i really appreciated it folks i i i would encourage everyone to pick up the truce progressives centrists and the future of the democratic party by hunter walker and lupe b lupin really enjoyed it it's a great read Hunter and Lupe, thank you so much for joining me. Is there anything else you want to add? Is there anything else you want people to understand about the book or no? I want them to read the book. Uh, I think we tell a lot of great <laughs> stories. And the, the the one thing I'd add, just based on that last conversation, is look out for the character of John Gramata. He's the, the chair of the Rockland County Democratic Party, former DSA member, kind of went mainstream as a Democrat. This amazing guy. And this detail is probably not in the book, but he was like, his shirt was half open. He had this like thatch of, of, of <laughs> rich chest hair out at the party. And he sort of, in Sean Patrick Maloney's absence, became the MC of that night. Um, and he was leading all these candidates up to kind of give their swan song to amazing guys who've been in the state legislature, really articulate, um, lots of different backgrounds. And, and, and we get into who those people are and you should look out for them too. But John Gramata himself, I thought was this amazing sort of figure of New York politics, this DSA guy who all of a sudden has to like shepherd over the mainstream Democratic Party's uh, semi-humiliating state loss in the midst of a national victory. Um, it was it was a cool story to to watch unfold and one that we really enjoyed writing about. Yeah, and he, he was actually a Broadway producer, I believe, and a, a quite successful one. So he might have been the best person to sort of conduct the the tragic symphony of, of Sean Patrick Maloney's fall. Um, I, you know, I would also say as much as we did sort of unearth new stuff about, you know, recent history, um, it is a book that I think will tell people um, about both 2024 and 2028. Um, you know, we, we get into how the Democrats primary calendar changed going forward. Um, and that that didn't make too much noise this cycle. But it will be a huge deal um, when you have an open cycle uh, next time, and when you sort of have, you know, um, the DNC reviewing the calendar with with potentially several different candidates of several wings of the party, you know, jockeying for their favored states to to move up. Um, so that's going to be the next big inter-party fight. We set the scenes and we go behind the scenes of that. Um, and I think we also dig a ton into the character of Kamala Harris. Um, and she's a really complicated story because, you know, we talk about, you know, what a pioneer she is many times over, what an absolute spectacular mess her last campaign was that left some of the people around her, um, even as they acknowledged, you know, she's faced discrimination and sexism, um, just not feeling like she had what it takes. Um, and even staffers saying, you know, this person should not be president. And yet, you know, we also got, I think, what are some early signs of her maybe finding her footing, um, including that apparently Vice President Harris, you know, was a big voice in getting the Democrats to focus on abortion um, in the last midterms, which I think has been a real bright spot um, in a shaky time for them electorally. Um, and also we see the Biden campaign making her aid uh, their new campaign manager. So I think, you know, if you read this book, you're going to get a lot of gossip from the past couple of years. We've got private uh, conversations with Obama that have never been reported. We've got, you know, stories of, of uh, all the war rooms and, and, and what have you. But you'll also get sort of a, a key to understanding what's coming next. So I really hope people check it out. 
at their bookstore or their local library. Yeah, the the primary calendar fight, as you both point out, I for, forgot about that. Opening it up to <laughs> like a new reshuffling every cycle without the ability for states and state parties to really enact this or abide by it just seems like they're setting themselves up for absolute chaos every cycle. I just, I don't understand what they're doing there. It's going to be a mess. They're bringing back the smoke filled room, but they're also making it weirdly powerless. It's, it's a, it's a huge circus. Well, you know, I love what they did this time too, because it's like they bumped Georgia up when Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, two Republicans actually control that. And then they were just like, Nope. Not going to do it, right? Which was like the most foreseeable outcome ever, right? Um, and, and you know, I think uh, that whole thing, and again, like as you were alluding to, Jordan, they've, they've baked into the process. Now we're going to review this every four years, you know, because essentially, you know, people forget this, but like the last major change to the Democratic primary calendar was 2008. And it was basically the cause of what was, you know, a major rift between Obama and Hillary, um, you know, that was sort of the precursor to the the party split in 2016. And they've just like planned for themselves, like the next big showdown. So, you know, I, and I think that's really a big story of the Democrats that, that, you know, inability to kind of consolidate and, and even when everything seems to be going their way, there is a bit of a tendency to shoot themselves in the foot. It, it's a great read. There's so much more people will learn and discover and enjoy in this book. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, Hunter and Lupe, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where can people follow you and find more of your work? <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's such an open question <laughs> these days, man. Yeah. That's fraught. I mean, there was a time <laughs> I would have said you could find me on Twitter at Hunter W., you, you sort of still can. I'm, 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 uh, you know, bunkered down over there a little bit. I'm also on Blue Sky as Hunter W. Um, I am on Threads as Mr. Hunter Walker. Thanks a lot, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, for that quality username. Uh, and then I'm on Talking Points Memo, where I'm, I am an investigative reporter. If you, if you look over at Talking Points Memo, I should have a fun story in the next couple of days about. Uh, a good a, a woman, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, we're we're gonna have some fun with her in the next couple of days. So so tune in on TPM. Looking forward to that. Uh, I'm I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky and Threads as NYC Southpaw. I'm on Instagram as NYC Southpaw as well. But that that, that account's not very interesting. Just pictures <laughs> of food and stuff. Um, and uh, I read a, a newsletter called Paw Prints. And I also am a lawyer. So if you need legal help. Let me know. If you listen to this episode, I think is what he's saying. He is now your lawyer. So thank you for that. <laughs> That's right. Privilege attaches when you download the podcast. <laughs> thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us, man. Thanks, Jordan. It was a pleasure.